This is a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of CKNW. Welcome to Dollars and Cents. I'm Elaine Scollin, along with Blair Manton from Sands & Associates. They're experts in helping you get out of debt. Now, if you go back in history, debt was an awful, awful, awful thing. We had debtors' prisons. You couldn't even speak of it. People would just disappear from your town forever. So, Mm -hmm. I mean, I'm talking a long, long time ago. But that whole thing of debt, it's got a negative connotation for sure. Yeah, and if we even think, you know, I love talking history about about debt, you know, the word bankruptcy, so where that came from, you know, two words, there's banca and rota, and the Latin origin is rota is to break, and banca is basically the work desk. So if you couldn't pay your debt, someone would come and break your work desk. Really? And that's where originally bankruptcy came from. Wow. So imagine how productive that is. You can't pay me, and I'm going to make sure you can never pay anybody else again. (laughs) Right. So, and you have no job. Yeah. <laughs> Good work. So where Yay. the negative connotations of bankruptcy came from, it was honestly earned. And obviously today, if someone goes into bankruptcy, one of the first things we do is protect their tools of the trade because we want them to be able to earn money and turn things around. But yeah, the original connotations, as you said, debt was negative and bankruptcy was the end of the line. Yeah. Now this segment, call, we're calling it Not All Debts Are Created Equal, and there's good debt and there's bad debt. And there's ugly debt. And there's ugly Mm -hmm. debt. (laughs) All right, so let's talk about those three different kinds of debt. What's Mm -hmm. a good debt? What is a good debt? Yeah, so debt that's good is typically debt that you incur with the expectation that there's some future benefit, right? It's not that you're going to just pay the money and never see anything for it again, but it's money that you're essentially trying to invest, you know, for yourself, for others, for the future. So if you you bought a house 10 years ago in the lower mainland, that's probably great debt. Yeah, and you're you're selling it today for three times the amount, Mm -hmm. then that wasn't a bad debt to and have. you've been a genius, right? Yeah, exactly. Uh, so good debt, absolutely. Mortgages are kind of the top of the list for that. And the idea, again, for a mortgage is that you're investing in an asset that not only are you going to be able to live there every month to so provide utility that way, but it's going to appreciate over time. So as in your example, over a 10, 20, 50 year cycle, you're going to be able to sell that house for quite a bit more than what you paid for it. Sure. So part of a way to look at it is it's kind of a forced savings program right. where every month in Instead of paying rent to a landlord where, um, you know, basically just fee for service and nothing long term comes of that, um, you're investing in your own property, in your own house with the idea that you will recoup that eventually when you sell. But it's a risk because you're just assuming that your asset, your home is going to be worth more at the end of the day. Mm -hmm. And depending on when you bought in this crazy market. Yeah that might not be the case. Exactly. I think a lot of people think, you know, the expression safe as houses, it's, it's not exactly that safe anymore. No. So yeah, looking in hindsight, everyone would have been a genius buying, you know, in the last 10 years, a house in Vancouver. Sure. Um, but in the last six months, I've had a number of folks, I've spoken on this, this show, a lot of young families come into me who are so overextended on exactly. their mortgage uh, because they bought a house at a certain price and then they pulled money out because they wanted to renovate the house. And sure. now they've done their renovations and they're ready to sell. But what they thought 
thought their profit margin was going to be. If the market was still going up, they'd be geniuses. But sure. now the market has frozen, especially above a certain mark, um, you know, kind of a $2 million plus house, which again, people with $2 million house, we don't need to feel sorry for them a lot. No. Um, but folks who are completely overextended and might owe $2.2 million on that house exactly. and thought they could have sold it for two point five, you know, they feel completely, completely constrained at this point, yeah. hoping, you know, can they hold on long enough for the market to come back or do they have to sell at a loss? Yeah. So a house in the short term can fluctuate relatively significantly. So it's not a type of a short-term investment you'd want to hang your hat on. Yeah. And depending on what market you're in too, right? Because some uh, there was a point that you had to spend at least a million dollars to get into the lower mainland mm-hmm. market and you weren't getting a mansion in Shaughnessy. No. You yeah. were getting like a two-bedroom rancher in Coquitlam. Oh, yeah. Or or Port Coquitlam, or Mary Hill, right? You or a townhouse. Yeah. So yeah, crazy. Mm-hmm. All right. Student loans. Yeah, so this is another form of what really should be good debt. So you imagine you're borrowing as a student because you're investing in yourself. And isn't education such a wonderful asset? Nobody can steal it from you. It doesn't depreciate. All You've true. You've got it for life. You know, and typically going to university, you're learning how to learn. You're learning how to be a lifelong person that can acquire and integrate knowledge. So all those are wonderful things. That being said, you've really got to be careful that what you're studying is going to be allowing you to pay back the amount of debt that you're incurring to get that degree. So I encourage people to really look long and hard at what are prospects after graduation. What's a reasonable starting salary? What's a reasonable budget going to look like, especially in the lower mainland with rental costs being high and vacancies being low. Exactly. Um, You know, a couple concrete things, you know, one is to consider, even though the government's going to advance you a certain amount for a student loan, don't automatically take the maximum. Most people just max out on the student loan. Hey, it's free money from the government, but it's not free because it's got to come back at some point. So if there's an ability for you to budget and not take the full student loan entitlement, that's only going to pay you back later on in life. Uh, And then the other point is if you're able to work part-time through the school year or through the summers, obviously try to pay things down over time, that's going to help mitigate that. So, you know, for the vast majority of people, especially going through professional programs, you know, the doctors, lawyers, dentists, so on and so forth. Accountants, yeah, you know, pick some. And a lot of trade tradespersons as well who come out, you know, with student loans, they're very easily able to service because the wages are quite good. Uh, but sometimes there are gen, some d- diploma programs, which we don't, won't go into because there's a lot of value in various programs. Yeah. But you've really got to take a look at what is the financial viability of that post-graduation. And the cost of education today mm-hmm. compared to, you know, don't want to sound too old, but mm. it's crazy. Oh, yeah. What it costs to go to school these days. And I think just one last point on that, Elaine, is where I really see some crazy costs, so to speak, is with, you know, not the big names, not with the UBC, SFU, CAP, things like that. It's with some of the professional colleges Mm. where they're really, you know professional programs that say they're going to drive you right into a certain job and sometimes that job doesn't materialize but the costs can be you know over ten thousand dollars for a semester in some cases so you really got to be careful absolutely uh okay so we've gone we've covered some good debt Mm -hmm. or some some good thinking around good debt Mm -hmm. uh bad debt yeah so bad debt is a situation where there's no future benefit the money's been spent the benefit is long gone and all that remains is the regret and the monthly interest (laughs) costs and you know the despondency when you when you think about it. You so, make it sound so sad and awful. Well, there is hope, but yeah, yeah. Like when you're when you're sitting with a bunch of bad debt, it doesn't feel good. And so credit cards would fall under that category? Yeah, absolutely. And for most people that I see, the credit card debt accumulates slowly. It happens over time, and quite often it's just a small monthly overspend of a budget, and maybe the budget doesn't exist, but if we were to put one together, we'd see that there's a few hundred dollars more going out than what's coming in. Um, and the challenge with credit card debt is that it's just interest upon interest. 
interest that the mm-hmm. debt snowballs. So at you know 24% interest, that alone doubles every three years if you do nothing with it. So you might have put some money on the credit card a few years ago, and now when you're paying it back, you're paying back twice what you borrowed or two and a half times. And I have people say, they show me a balance, like they know they've paid that two or three times over the years with interest charges, and bank doesn't care at this point. This is still what you owe, and that's what you you signed on for. Exactly. Uh, Credit card debt, boy, oh boy. And there was was a piece I was just going to mention, and oh, darn, Um, I can't remember what it was. Keep going, sorry. If it comes back, we'll we'll Uh, go there. Please, thanks. Uh, Lengthy vehicle loan financing is another form of bad debt because this is a depreciating asset and you know where we have people financing vehicles for seven or eight year terms um, you know at that point they're almost always going to have a car payment they're going to have an asset that's worth less than the amount that they owe on it right. um, so it is a case you really want to mitigate those long-term financing try to get something a couple years old financing it for three years and then create yourself the budget space of not having a car payment each month Perfect. And what I was going to mention about the credit card, which is kind of new, right? That you said that that on the statement, Mm -hmm. it tells you if you only pay the minimum payment, that a certain amount of time, that's how long it's going to take to pay this thing off. Yeah, I love that disclosure. So for anybody who's listening who hasn't looked at that, it's in the last few years. Last few years, yeah. the credit card providers, some of them put it, you know, front and center on the front page. Some of them, it's almost a little footnote. You got to really look for it on the last page. Yes. But it will say something like, if you only make the minimum payments, we estimate it will take. And I've seen, you know, 150 years plus uh, to, you know, to make these to make these payments to, to pay it off. That exactly. does put it in stark relief. So if you haven't looked at that, mm-hmm. maybe look at that too. Oh yeah. That'll really put into, into perspective, you know, how much bad debt you have and how just paying the minimums is not going to get you out of debt. Now, used vehicles, you talked about that, that, mm-hmm. that, that that's a, a better investment than a brand new one. And I like the idea of talking about car sharing. Yeah. And that is just such a great idea. Yeah, and I think that's more and more where the environment is going, right? If there's an asset um, that you just need for a certain period of time, why own it? Why have all the maintenance, the depreciation? Um, some great car sharing options in Vancouver. Especially Vancouver, yeah. And mm-hmm. the Lower Mainland, I know it's expanding. Yeah. We even have some, I live on the island, and we've even got some going on in the island now too, which we didn't before, but we do now. Mm-hmm. And the worst kind, the Ugly debt. Yeah, ugly debt is usually debt that you incurred as a last resort or it's debt that there's severe immediate consequences if you don't de- if you don't deal with it right, right. away. Um, so for anybody that's listening, it won't be a surprise if they've listened to us before that I say payday loans, just say no. It's the ugliest of the ugly debt. Um, the costs and the fees, I don't know how they got around these criminal code uh, restrictions around interest because 60% is what the criminal code says is the maximum anybody's ever allowed to charge on a debt. But when you add up the short-term fees and costs and interest rates on a payday loan, it's north of 400% sometimes 500%. So it's so expensive financing. And what it does, it breeds people into a cycle of reliance. So you get one payday loan, and then when you get your check, you got to pay it back, but you need a second payday loan because the extra charges there just took your grocery money. So now your second payday loan is for your groceries, but then when you pay that one back, you need a third payday loan to pay your rent again. So I see people sometimes with 10, 15 different payday loans from every name under the sun with permutations of cash and money. And it's, you know, there's new ones popping up all the time. Um, And yeah, it's something where there is some regulation in my perspective, there's not enough regulation, but it falls to the individual, you know, really just to try to avoid that financing. Because from what I've seen, payday loans, they don't really solve any problem. All they do is kick the can down the road for a period of months and the person ends up more in debt, more stressed out, more worried about the situation than when they started. And government debts, you've put that under that category too. And and I know that your inference isn't that that they're ugly, Mm -hmm. but they just need to be looked after. That's it. So by 
ugly, I mean there can be severe consequences yes. if you don't deal with them. Yeah. Um, unpaid income taxes, for example, the worst thing you can do is to not file your tax return because you know you owe the government money. Trust me, they know you owe them money. They get the employer to file the T4s or they have some idea of your self-employment income. And if you don't file over a period of years, what they'll do is they'll do an arbitrary assessment, which means they're just going to pick a number that's going to be a very high number and then you've got to disprove them of what that tax debt is. And by the way, they're the government, so they don't have to sue you. They can come and take your wages, take your assets, everything like that. So if you find yourself owing money to the government, first is to be the best tax filer they've ever seen. So be completely compliant, get all the returns in, um, You know, just make sure you jump through all the hoops they want you to jump through. Um, but second is just to really take action about it. So to speak with the representative, usually with most government debts, they will work with you if you're able to pay things off over time in full. And if you're not able to pay them off over time in full, that's when you need the help of a trustee like myself at Sands and Associates. Yeah, licensed insolvency trustee. Exactly. So, and can you throw in a couple of these, like what, what consumers can do when they're faced with this kinds of stuff? So take stock of the situation, mm-hmm. uh, take a look at what the how much debt is owed at this point. And if you're only making the minimum payment Boy, you need to figure that out. Yeah, just don't ignore the situation. Don't be scared to reach out for help. You know, it's a free, no obligation consultation, and gen- generally, we'll be able to help you with the bad, the ugly, and the good. Excellent. And here's the website. First of all, sands-trustee.com. Go to the website, get some questions answered, or call 1-800-661-3030. Get that free consultation and to find an office near you. We'll be back with more right after this. Welcome to Dollars and Cents. I'm Elaine Scollin, along with Blair Manton from Sands & Associates. They're experts in helping you get out of debt. Now, this segment's called, What Can Creditors Do If I Can't Pay? And that's got to be the nub, the the center, the heart of the whole, or not problem, but the Mm. whole concern and worry about being in debt and fear. Mm. What can they do if I can't pay? Yeah, you know, I often hear people say, you know, pay me or else. Okay, well, what, what's the or else here, right? What's you know, the or else? That's yeah, good. Yeah, what does the law prescribe versus what's, you know, folklore and would never happen and things like that? Because most of the time, people think, you know, the world is going to cave in on them, everything's going to collapse if they don't pay debts. And I'm not the, I'm the last person to say, don't pay your debts. Obviously, if you incur the debts honestly and you're able to pay them back, then do so. But there are many situations where through no fault of your own, you might be unable to honor an obligation you entered into in good faith. And it's really helpful and important for people to know, well, you know, what is really the worst case, the or else, the the bottom line scenario here? Because we know and you know how stressful it can be. Depending depending on your age, you you either grew up with a certain mentality in mm-hmm. your home that this wasn't excess, uh, uh, acceptable or that it was okay, but in the real world, it actually isn't okay not to pay your debts. So there's a lot of different elements that are at play in people's brains on this. Yeah, money Money is such a fascinating oh. psychological issue and everybody's got a different relationship with it. Every family talks about money differently. And I think one thing, Elaine, we talked about in, in past shows, but let's, it bears repeating here is, um, you know, sometimes that anxiety we have about money can be 
targeted also or combined with anxiety we have about taxes. And there yeah. are scammers out there who we've probably all heard of the Canada Revenue Agency scam where they call you and say, you've got a debt to Canada Revenue Agency. We're taking action in the next hour unless you pay us through gift cards or bitcoins or things like that. And it sounds ridiculous, but someone in a tough situation can fall prey to that if they don't have the right information. And that stuff can come in a text on your cell mm-hmm. phone. It can come on an email. It can yep. come uh, as a as a message that's being left on your home phone, on your cell phone, yeah. on your work phone. It's just crazy. Mm-hmm. Okay, so let's go. What mm-hmm. can what can really happen if you don't pay your bills? Yeah, so let, let's start off. You know, you've, you've basically you've been making good on your obligations yeah. and suddenly you've been a couple months delinquent. What's the first thing creditors will do? What is and, it? Yeah, so typically what they're going to do is they're going to increase your interest rate. So, Oof. you know, quite often even Which if, is the worst thing possible oh, yeah, to do. It's, gee, I'm drowning. Let, let's put more water in my mouth. <laughs> exactly. like, yeah, it really doesn't help. Here, hang on to this weight. Uh-huh, yeah. in, indeed. No, it just, it just weighs you down further. But, you know, quite often if you look closely at credit card or agreements, there's a standard rate, you know, that might be 19 point something. But then if you're in default, suddenly that rate can go to 24 or 29% or something like that. Absolutely. Um, oftentimes, if you're on a balance transfer, you might have tried to consolidate some debt and put things together and got, you know, a one or 2% rate for a period of time. As soon as you miss a single payment on that, you lose that promotional interest rate and it goes up to, you know, the 19, 20, 30%, whatever it might be. Yeah. So an immediate impact of you being delinquent can be that suddenly your debts get more expensive which again, doesn't help anybody. It doesn't it just, help you, just makes for sure. It makes you a little bit worse off. What about collection agency? We often talk about collection mm-hmm. agencies and they can be brutal. Oh, absolutely. And sometimes that's their job is just to make it very uncomfortable for you to be in this situation so that you'll do whatever you can to get this person to stop calling you, which is usually, you know, just pay them what they want to be paid. Uh, when a collection agent gets involved, essentially that's when the bank or the creditor or whoever it is, they've given up on you as a client. They don't care about treating you right anymore. Um, they're calling in the heavy hitters where there's no previous client relationship. They don't care that you've dealt with the same institution for 20 years. Um, They're going to tell you you're a bad person because you're not paying what you're supposed to be paying. So after they've increased your credit rate, if you're still not paying, typically they'll get a collection agency to call you, call you many times per day. And we've talked in other segments about how you don't have to put up with those calls. There is a way to stop it, Um, but it can be a very stressful situation um, because again, it's very difficult to have a conversation with somebody where you know the facts are, the facts are you're not living up to what you had hoped you could do, and someone making you feel worse about that uh, is not a good situation. What about seizing your bank account? Can anybody do that? Well, it's there's an easy way and a hard way. Um, so the easy way is if you're banking anywhere that you owe money, you're at risk all the time of having your bank account seized. And that means any of the top big banks mm-hmm. of this fine country of ours. Yeah. Yeah, now they can't go bank to bank, but if you've got an account that, you know, pick one of the big five banks, uh, you've got a credit card account there, and then you also put your paycheck into your checking account. If you default on that credit card account, they can go right into your checking account and take that money out there. It's called the right of offset. Okay. If you're banking at any other of the big banks or any credit union or anywhere else where you don't have any debt, they would have to hire a lawyer. They'd have to take you to court. It would cost them thousands of dollars and take months. You would see it coming a mile away. Um, so that's why we encourage everybody. One of the first steps when they start to deal with us at Sands and Associates is we've got to separate your daily income, your savings from your borrowing because you make it way too easy. If you have all of your accounts under one institution, they can institute the right of offset and basically take your money. And usually it's at the most inopportune 
opportune time ever. It's right when you've got your paycheck in there, the rent check's about to come out, and then, gee, suddenly there's a $1,000 hole because you've been delinquent on your credit card for three months and they've decided they're not willing to wait any longer. And you recommend that people separate those things out before mm-hmm. you get into a problem. Yeah, I, I think everybody should, should live under that type of a model where you don't borrow, uh, where you actually keep your day-to-day income or your savings. Now, this is completely contrary to everything that banks are advertising, saying, we want everything under one roof and we'll mm-hmm. give you this rebate on fees and so and on and so forth. We're your friend. We mm-hmm. know we'll help. We'll look after you. Yeah. When times get tough, you see who your real friends are. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> and yeah, if you wanted to keep everything under one roof, ask some very hard questions about that right of offset, about how it could be triggered, when it could be triggered, and then make an eyes wide open discussion. I don't think the convenience of having just a single account uh, makes it in any way worthwhile to, to do everything under one institution. What about legal action? Somebody taking legal action against you? Yeah, this is pretty rare. So if you owe somebody money, they've already increased your credit rate, that, that hasn't made you pay, you've got a collection agent involved, that hasn't made you pay, what they'll typically do next is threaten legal action. And out of 10,000 people that get threatened with being sued, about one in 10,000 will actually be sued. Okay. So I have people calling me frantically all the time, and after I get them to breathe deeply a couple times, we read through all the pages, all the words on the page, and usually there'll be a ton of threats before you ever see something that's legally binding. But if you do get served with documents, it's just like you would think in the movie, somebody walks up and say, are you so-and-so? Yes, you've been served with legal documents. That means you need to take things seriously. Once someone has sued you, it's not a criminal proceeding, but they would have the right once they go to court, and usually that's within a couple weeks or a month, they could come after your wages. And that's the biggest club typically that they can beat you with is they can take up to 30% of your wages in the province of BC before they're ever paid to you. So you owe money, you've been sued, and suddenly they're taking your wages. And usually the only way to stop that is to work with a trustee like myself here. Right. And you want to, I want to go see you before we get to that place. That's ideally the case, because if we're going to be able to work out a deal with the creditor, it's a lot easier to do so before they've actually incurred legal costs and taking it to court. That being said, at any point, if you've already been sued, they're already taking your wages, a trustee has the federal authority to put a stop to all that stuff. Can we talk about the tips for dealing with unpaid debt in the last minute and a half that we've got? I just think it's so important that we leave folks with some... Mm -hmm positive and good information. Absolutely. And yeah, I I hope people do take away from this that yeah, there's a lot of things that folks can do, but if you get the right help at the right time, it it doesn't need to happen to you. Um, So a couple of tips. So first off, open your mail. I have a lot of folks that come in with me and sometimes it's fun. You know, we go through, we open a few months (laughs) worth of mail all together. We see all the promo offers. We look at the statements as they grow, but it's not a best practice. So you got to open your mail over time, even if it's, you know, it's not good news. Um, Hiding your your head in the sand doesn't help anything. Doesn't help. And you might be missing some of these notices where they say, hey, we're threatening to sue you, so on and so forth. You want to keep up on all that stuff. Okay. Um, you know, a second point is just stay calm. You know, yeah. don't make any rash decisions unless you've spoken to an expert like a licensed insolvency trustee. Don't cash your RRSPs. Absolutely. Don't do that stuff. Yeah. Don't go borrowing from family and friends. Don't go moving money around crazily. Um, and, you know, the last thing is just to ask for help, you know, just to understand there are people out there um, who will meet with you, no charge, no obligation. I like to say we listen without judgment. That's the best thing a trustee can do. Yeah. And listen, Sands & Associates has a great website with just a ton of good information. The, uh, at the uh, link is sands-trustee.com 
Or what's even better is if you, I'll give you the 1-800 number, uh, 1-800-661-3030. Get a free consultation. Take your stuff in. Sit down with Blair or any of the people who work at Sands and Associates and say, this is what's, this is what I'm facing. How do I deal with it? You're listening to Dollars and Cents. We'll be back with more right after this. Welcome to Dollars and Cents. I'm Elaine Scollin, along with Blair Manton from Sands & Associates. They're experts in helping you get out of debt. This segment is called Choosing a Debt Advisor. And I know there's some points and some key questions uh, that we want to ask when we're trying to get some professional debt assistance. Mm -hmm. And uh, I I know, Blair, that you deal uh, with these questions every day. Let's talk about the key questions that... Um, that people either uh, would benefit from knowing before they go in to see you or ones that get covered when they come in and see you. Yeah, it's a, so exactly. So first off, you know, when, when I'm dealing with a client, I know typically they're not having the best day of their life, right? They're mm-hmm. typically, they're feeling pretty bad about their debts. Sometimes they're hopeless about the future. You know, perhaps they've just lost their job or they've, you know, uh, become divorced or someone's gotten sick. Those are all really classic reasons why someone would have a debt problem. So usually if they're in that moment, they're not even thinking about the questions to ask, right? They're just so focused on surviving another moment um, that they're very vulnerable um, to, you know, not everybody is as ethical and as able to help you as Sands and Associates is. So if you don't go through and ask the right questions all the way along, sometimes you might think you're actually solving this problem, getting yourself through a dark time. You might be just paying money for nothing and being taken advantage of again. So for today, let's talk what are the key questions, what are the answers that you need to be listening for um, to really, if it's you in the situation or if it's a loved one to help them know when they're going to get help. Great. So what are the key what are the key questions? What should yeah. I what would be of benefit for me to have sort of in the back of my hand mm-hmm. or head or written down when I walk in? Yeah, so absolutely number one question, is the advisor licensed to help you? And that's absolutely huge. So my job, it's right in the title, I'm a licensed insolvency trustee. That license comes from the federal government. It comes from Industry Canada that oversees my regulator. And what it means is that this is a license the federal government gives out. They don't give it out lightly. There's about a 1,000 trustees in Canada. There's less than 100 in BC. Uh, Each year, there's maybe two or three new trustees that qualify. So it's one of the more elite, more difficult type of qualifications to have. And if you're licensed, it means you have the authority. You have the authority to protect somebody. You have the authority to reduce somebody's debt. And by protect, I mean stop all the collection calls, stop their wages from being taken, stop their assets from being seized. So it's absolutely critical that you ask the person, are you licensed? And if they say, oh yeah, I'm licensed, well, who are you licensed by? And if it's not the federal government, if it's some you know industry body or association of various professionals, that's another indication. Maybe you want to ask a couple extra questions. Yeah, and I know it's not exactly part of what what we were going to talk about in this segment, but those folks that are doing that work, mm-hmm. uh, sometimes who they are either paid yeah. by or representing will surprise you. Can you talk about that for just a oh, moment? Oh, of course, yeah. So if, if you were to think, you know, um, sometimes it's the most touchy-feely advertisements you've ever seen. Sometimes it's for a not-for-profit charity, a counseling organization. Quite often, a lot of those are paid 100% by the people that you owe money to. So essentially, if we strip off all of the veneer, and this is the same in, in Ontario, um, 
many counseling organizations are actually registered as collection agents because that's the function that they perform. So you might think you're working with a credit counselor, you're working with a not-for-profit organization, but really look under the covers, figure out who's paying the bills, how are they funded, and generally I'm a big fan of follow the money, and who's funding them is typically who's writing the ticket, who's saying how things are going to be done, and your objectives are typically quite different than the people that you owe money to if you're facing that crisis situation. Your objective is to preserve some quality of life to get yourself back on your feet. Your creditor's objectives are to get 100% of their debt back and to lose as little as possible. And if you're getting advice from somebody who's funded by those creditors, you might not be getting the impartial advice you deserve. Okay, let's talk about the fees then, because that's uh, way up there, right? If you've got the right person or you've got to figure out if you've got the right person that's helping you, mm-hmm. what are they going to charge you? Yeah, you need to have absolute transparency on fees. So as a licensed insolvency trustee, everything I do is black and white. It's in the law. So if you have to file for a bankruptcy, you don't pay any fees when you meet with me for the first, you know, three, four, whatever times we need to figure out what the option is. It's when I help you execute on an option, whether it's a bankruptcy or a proposal, you start to pay then based on what the government says you have to pay. And again, everything is fully transparent. There's a government tariff that says, you know, if you file for bankruptcy and you're low income, you're going to pay $200 a month for nine months. That's it. That's all. No extra fees, no extra administrative costs, nothing like that. If you do a consumer proposal, the government says, okay, the trustee is going to receive a portion of what you pay back. It's all set by government tariff and there's no upfront fees there either. So if you sit down with me and we meet a bunch of times to file a proposal and we figure out the proposal's going to be $200 a month. The day we sign the proposal, we generally say, okay, let's make the first proposal payment. We'll just continue on after there. So you really have to be careful. Are you paying fees that are regulated, that are codified in law, that you're guaranteed to get a result from? Or are you paying fees to an unlicensed organization where it's to cover overhead, to cover administrative costs? Um, you know, sometimes there's even extra fees like, you know, credit monitoring or credit repair fees or, or different things that, you know, essentially do nothing for you. But because there's no regulation essentially outside of, of trustees, the amount of fees and the nature of those fees are essentially unlimited and there's no guarantee that you get any value for them. And the debt settlement agencies, that's a, a term that you that you use once in a while. Yeah. Now, how do they differ from from what we've already talked about. Yeah, so debt settlement um, to me is one of the most buyer beware type of um, engagements you'd want to get involved in or not get involved in. The way debt settlement works is they say to you, an individual who maybe owes a bunch of money to people, stop paying all of your debts. Just stop, full stop, okay? And what we want you to do instead is take that money you are going to pay on those debts and pay it to us instead, the debt settlement agency. And what they say is that money that you were going to pay on the debts, we're going to take part of that as our fees and for the first few months, it's 100% of it is their fees. So they get paid regardless of a result. They're taking their fees up front. So your debtors haven't received anything from no. you. And they're probably still calling you, you know, left, right, and center. Right. But if you call the debt settlement agent, they just say, oh, ignore those calls. You'll never get sued until you are sued. But anyway, that, that's another story here. Yeah. Um, so you're paying fees every month. And then theoretically, what's going to happen is after probably two, three years or so, the debt settlement agency is going to go to the people that you owe money to and say, hey, you haven't heard from Joe for two years, how would you like to settle on his debt for 20 or 30% of the total payable tomorrow? Sometimes the creditors will say yes, but very often they'll say, no, we don't deal with you. You're not regulated. We have no you know, authority to, to accept what you're saying here. So quite often the debt settlement agency will then say, well, we got all of our fees. We're going to return your savings to you, less some more administrative costs. And then what have you done? You've treaded water for two years. You paid probably thousands of dollars to somebody who couldn't help you. 
all your creditors are now severely delinquent and perhaps you're getting sued. You're getting your wages taken or your assets seized. So debt settlement can be one of the worst experiences ever. Now, it's definitely less prevalent than it has been in the past few years. So if we were three or four years ago, I was seeing people every week. You know, there were these very slick ads on the radio. Alan Thicke of Growing Pains Fames was one of the the key endorsers there. Rest in peace, Alan Thicke. Rest in peace, (laughs) but be careful on who you endorse because you will be remembered for it. Right. Um, Yeah. So, you know, there was a bunch of of really tough advertisements out there, you know, with trusted people saying, you know, you can trust us. We're going to restructure your debt. I had people in my office every single week about that. Wow. So now the BC government, and I'm proud Sands and Associates was a big lobby to get get this changed. They put in regulation to protect clients from debt settlement. But a really key thing is a lot of these companies are offshore. They're in the US. They're doing things over the phone. They're not subject to this regulation. So very much buyer beware. All right. That's re- that's a really good point, as opposed to um, the the uh, licensed insolvency trustee like Blair, regulated. You know what you're going to pay, and you have there's a clear plan as to how you're going to get out of debt, which is it's just the best the best way to do it. Mm-hmm. Um, all right, so we've already sort of answered this question about mm-hmm. advisors protecting people from their creditors or collection agents. Yep. If you owe money, you're going to get those calls or, and they can also uh, garnish your wages, yeah. all those things. So it feels, yeah, again, a, a, a Somebody like you, a licensed insolvency trustee, you're the one that's actually going to help me in the end. Oh, yes. I mean, I really, I, I just feel that's really important to repeat. Yeah, and, and let's be clear about, you know, the why behind it. So the why is because the federal government backs me. The federal government has legislation that I'm empowered to enforce, which says as soon as you're dealing with me, it's illegal for you to get more collection calls. It's illegal for any lawsuits to continue. If you're being sued, you know, tomorrow and you file bankruptcy today, gee, that all stops. So it's full protection, you know, to give you the time that you need to restructure. And it's a guaranteed, it's a part of the whole process here is what's called the stay of proceedings. If you're dealing with somebody that's not licensed, they might be able to negotiate with, you know, four of the five people that you owe money to saying, hey, we're going to get you all your money back, but, you know, just hold off on the collection calls, but they'll never be able to do it with government debt. So if you owe student loans or income taxes, they're going to opt out of anything an unlicensed advisor can do. And there's no guarantee that all the creditors are going to stay, you know, at bay. They're going to give you the breathing room. Anybody could opt out at any time and choose to sue you to take assets, to seize wages or different things like that. And I like uh, the piece for that, that comes with dealing with you or Sands and Associates or a licensed insolvency trustee is at the end of the day, when you come, to, when you've written your proposal or your bankruptcy uh paper that mm-hmm. says this is how much money you're going to pay back it is often what's the percentage of what you actually owe at the end of the day yeah quite often it's 20 to 30 percent that's what you have to pay back in a proposal which is extraordinary and that that is just like almost the core of the debt it's no mm-hmm. interest it's none of that stuff yep. that stuff stops right away and that when i first started hearing that from you i i thought my gosh what a relief that is for folks yeah the first time i heard it i thought i must have read something wrong here you know that this is too good to be true this program can't exist and i remember it was my my sister was in having some debt problems at the time and i saw wow 
this person owed 20 grand in, in consumer debt. They were able to do a proposal for 6,000. The person paid it off in three years and moved on. I was like, well, I wish I could have helped my sister with that at, at that time, you right. know? So it was really kind of family things that taught me about the, you know, consumer proposals and they exist, but it's really the case. It's not too good to be true. It exists, but people just need to know about it. And the total amount that you're going to pay as well. I really like that, that, yeah. that monthly, that monthly amount for however long it is. And there's yeah. a limit in, in that in terms of the length of time that it takes to pay it off too is was really reassuring. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So the maximum time in a proposal is going to be five years and most of them are done much sooner. Usually, you know, two to four years paying off a reduced amount, dealing with somebody that's fully licensed that can protect you. And a little aside here, if you go into a, a debt advisor and they say, oh, well, here's our business license. That's not the same thing. It's not <laughs> no. a business license. No, this is a federal government license to help you with your debt. Only a trustee possesses it. And you and the people that you work with are very, I mean, you especially being a licensed insolvency trustee in terms of credited, you have gone through, um, I, I know you've told me before, oh, it's but years it's and years, years, yeah. of, <laughs> years of education yep. to do this work. Mm-hmm. And and that's not something to be kind of laughed at. I mean, that's really significant. It is to me when I, when I, when I first heard that. Mm-hmm. You actually know what you're doing and you have the power and authority to create a situation for somebody which is just uh, tiny compared to what they've walked in with. Yeah, it's people's entire lives and we know that and we take it serious and we're so proud that we're able to help thousands of, of BC residents every year turn things around completely. Very good. You've been listening to Dollars and Cents, Blair Manton from Sands and Associates. Their mantra is helping you get out of debt. For information on any of the services that we've talked about or anything that's resonating with you or for someone you know, sands-trustee.com is the website. We'll be back with more right after this. Welcome to Dollars and Cents. I'm Elaine Scollin, along with Blair Manton from Sands & Associates. They're experts in helping you get out of debt. I'm so glad that you chose this topic Mm -hmm. because uh, we're... I worked in the news media for a very long time, and we were always talking about the interest rate because there was there was going to be a change. It was a big story. It went up by this amount or that amount, or why it didn't, or why it stayed the same. Blah blah blah, and um, and everybody speculates about them. Finally, yeah. everybody does. Oh, interest rates are always the the, the topic lately, exactly. right? Exactly, yeah. and it it wasn't until a very long time afterwards that. I all I sort of got some insight into how it affected me, like mm-hmm. personally me. And I, I'm pretty sure I'm not alone, right? The average person not knowing um, the impact that they have because interest there's different interest rates on all you know on different things. Oh yeah, I think you know most people understand when it hits their pocketbook when they really have to you know adjust to a change in interest rates. And we're going to talk about how that happens. Yeah. But you know the broader theory of it, I remember being so thrilled in my first year economics class when that basically the professor the prof was explaining here's how an interest rate is calculated. Here's how the government sets it. Here's why. So there's some fascinating background if people want to do a little bit of Googling here <laughs> okay. about, you know, why the government, uh, you know, sets interest rates the way that they do. Okay. But essentially, it's it's a way for them to, you know, put the gas or put the brakes on the economy. So it really does drive consumer behavior. It drives banks' behavior. Uh, and there's a number of ways that interest rate changes do or do not impact the average consumer. For sure it does, right? I mean, people people pay attention, whether it be a mortgage, you know, a mortgage rate, an interest rate on your mortgage. Yeah. Yeah, that's or the key one, right? Your credit card because it's all of a sudden un 
untold amount of money that you owe, and Mm -hmm. last month it was not that much Mm -hmm. or not as much. Okay, so credit card debt. I think that everybody gets impacted by that. Yeah, so let's talk about, so would an interest rate change your credit card? And typically the answer is no. Because, so if you think about it, prime rate is south of 2% or so, okay? Mm-hmm. What's an average credit card rate? 19, 20%? Yeah. yeah. It would be insane for banks to prime to, to price a credit card as we'll go prime plus 18%, prime plus 19%, something like that. I think it'd just be too cute. Um, so we've seen prime rates increase quite a bit over oh. the past year, 18 months. Credit card rates haven't moved at all. Okay. So typically credit card rates are so far divorced from the very, very low interest rate environment that we've been in that when interest rates fluctuate in the short term or even medium term basis, there really isn't a change to interest rates. They're already so far out there, they just don't get well, adjusted that's the thing. higher. You're already so high, they can't go any higher yeah. for the average person. Yeah, there unless are Unless s- they do, of course. Well, unless they, until they do. Yeah. <laughs> so who knows? Um, you know, there are some cards, you know, very low rate cards where you might find them priced at, you know, prime plus five or six or something like that. And those ones absolutely. Absolutely. They will increase as the prime rate increases. But I've got to say that's the single digit percentage or maybe less of cards, the vast majority of cards. Um, their price, that's something again, 19, 20, 30 percent, something like that. Now, you've put a little note in here, if I've read this correctly, mm-hmm. that you need to pay attention if you're delinquent on that credit card yeah. for a period of time, right? Yeah, Because, exactly. I mean, they'll charge you interest for the next month. That That's an automatic thing. Mm-hmm. I, I hate it. Oh, um, I <laughs> but if I'm consistently late... Mm-hmm. then I can be impacted again by a credit card company. Yeah, depending on on the credit card agreement, you may want to look at this if you're at the point where you might miss some payments, but oftentimes there's a preferred interest rate and then there's an interest rate, if special interest rate, that essentially if you're delinquent on the account, usually by more than a couple of months, um, they'll increase the cost of your card, you know, increase your interest rate sometimes by 5 or even 10%. And often then it sits at that March yeah. too. They don't bring it down the next month when you've paid it on time. That's right. Yeah, it yeah. can take a while to get that card back if you can do that at all. So the impact, yeah, if you start to miss payments, that's how interest rates can impact your credit card and not with the Bank of Canada moving the rates. Okay, the other thing that we always, or people often get credit on or finance something is their vehicles before mm-hmm. before their homes. They, they'll do a vehicle. Yeah, and vehicles similar to credit cards, there's not a whole lot that typically adjusts uh, with the interest rates. Most of the time, interest interest rates on a vehicle loan, they're fixed. So when you lock in for the vehicle term, um, hopefully you're getting a very advantageous rate of very low, or even if it's high or whatever, it typically is fixed. It doesn't change. Now, the challenge that people have with vehicle financing, as I've watched this happen over the last 10 years, is the terms just get longer and longer and longer so that we can afford, afford in quotation marks, more car. Right. So it's upwards of 85% of people right now are financing vehicles with a term of more than six years. Wow. And even, exactly, even though we make very good cars today, at the end of six years, most people are just saying, oh, well, I'm kind of sick of this one, or it's depreciated, and they go on to the next vehicle, but they're never without a car payment. Yeah. So you can imagine that financial flexibility that comes from having an extra few couple hundred dollars that could be a car payment, having that go away and still having a car that you can drive, that's a bit of flexibility that people don't have if they're financing a vehicle for six plus years all the time. So my advice there is obviously pay attention to the rate, but usually it's locked in, it's not going to shift over time, but consider buying something year or two old where all the depreciation 
negotiation has been taken. Or if you're local to the lower mainland, look at some of the car sharing options. There are mm. a lot of folks who find they don't even need a car anymore if they use car to go or Evo or a couple of the other ones that are around. And it's almost a generation thing because I know a ton of people, who young people who don't have cars at all. Mm-hmm. It's not even in their brains to get them. They yeah. only get them when they, once they get married and they have kids, then it's yeah. like they have to have them. But yeah, it's the last thing on their minds getting a vehicle. Why would I need, why would I do that? Yeah. And I think the, the sharing economy, so to speak, I think that that's really going to take off a lot more in vehicles, even more than what we've seen. Especially in the urban centers, for mm-hmm. sure. It yeah. just makes so much good sense. Yeah. Uh, what about lines of credit? Absolutely direct one-to-one impact. So as you see, you know, the interest rates go up. The people I have coming into my office are folks who have home equity lines of credit, HELOCs, so they're they're called. And those to me are the most insidious way of losing the equity in your house because it happens over time. The bank just keeps increasing your limit on your line of credit. Um, and then I've seen people who've owned houses for 20 years in Vancouver and they should have a lot of equity, but all that equity has been sucked out over time on lines of credit. Mm. And when interest rates were, you know, 0.5% or 1%. Okay, well, it was reasonable. This money wasn't costing you very much, but now interest rates are almost double that. So anybody who's got a home equity line of credit, they've got to be able to make the payments on that each month. And what I don't like about these lines of credit is quite often they're just interest-only payments. So even though the interest rate is going up and it's becoming less affordable, all you're doing is just servicing the debt. You're not paying it down at all. So you've really got to be careful with a home equity line of credit. It's a relatively new, you know, in the last 15, 20 years type of a product. And it's a massive amount of individuals in Canada have lines of credit. And in BC, we've got the highest balances on our line of credit and the highest percentage of individuals that have them. Um, So it's something that as interest rates continue to rise, um, there'll be a direct one-to-one impact on payments required for home equity lines of credit. So you need to pay attention to that. Mm -hmm. What about mortgages? So it kind of uh, two solitudes here. It's if you went for the certainty of a fixed mortgage, obviously fixed means nothing changes over the term, but at renewal, you might have a bit of a surprise. Right. Uh, but where I see the immediate impact is for individuals with variable rate mortgages, um, because a variable rate mortgage, just as the, t- as the title says, it varies along with the interest rate. So as the rate rates have ratcheted up, um, you can imagine if somebody had a variable rate mortgage um, you know, of 1% and now it's sitting at 2% or 25 um, that's a very significant increase the amount of interest costs that they're paying each month. Um, So folks with a variable rate interest mortgage, um, they might have some challenges as rates continue to ratchet up. Um, So, you know, one thing to consider is to look at, you know, what's the point where you lock in? And what's the point where you can sleep at night and you can budget and have the certainty of a payment? Historically, it's always been better to stay variable. All the studies have shown that, yeah, if you can withstand the risk, you'll be okay. Um, But that's cold comfort for somebody who just doesn't have the cash flow to withstand any further rate increases. Locking in might make Make some sense. Yeah, that's a hard one, right? Because you just don't know what the future holds. That's and right. that's and that's the key. That's the risk, right? If if only we knew. Yeah, and you know, we've known for sense. what the last three years the rates had to go up, but nobody knew when and how much and at what rate. So, you know, now we're all living through it. But you're right, no one knows exactly what the future holds. Yeah. So so what can you do? If you is there some sort of key things because we've talked about a lot of different areas where where interest rates uh, affect our payments and some in some cases where they don't. But what do you what's your advice? You know, in general, as with many debt problems, it's don't panic. You know, take some deep breaths, really take a look at the situation 
situation, you know, the folks who are most at risk are those who are most extended on their debts. And that is a small percentage of people. So if you feel really at risk, um, you know, you'd want to talk to to a professional, but in many cases, people will be able to weather some small short-term fluctuations. Interest rates do go up and they go down with the business cycle. It shouldn't be a be-all or an end-all in most situations. And I think just a final point is just really to look at the budget. So it's always a best practice to really keep a close eye, what's coming in, what's going out, and how are things changing over time. Sometimes it's easy to miss the fact that now your cash flow negative because your mortgage costs have increased. Yeah. Sounds all really, really good advice. You're listening to Dollars and Cents. I'm Elaine Scull, and oh, you've been listening to Blair Manton. He's from Sands and Associates, helping you get out of debt. And if you'd like information on any of the things that we've talked about on the show, go to the website sands-trustee.com or call 1-800-661-3030 for that free consultation. The proceeding was a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of CKNW. Hi, it's Shauna, and I might be a bad parent because my kids think french fries are vegetables. Hey, it's Ryan, and I might be a bad parent because I went out for wings when my wife was in the hospital after giving birth. Johnny here. I might be a bad parent because in my house, the tooth fairy gives pocket change. But we're not alone. Len emailed us and said his six-year-old daughter's Tarzan moment going from love seat to lazy boy by curtains made him more proud than any dance <laughs> recital. <laughs> and Andy left his two-year-old at the rink. All right, guys, I'm sure we're not alone, like Andy's kid. For stories and confessions like this, make sure you check out our podcast. It's called Bad Parents, and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. I left a glove at the rink.